my name is Mark Lepresti. Um, I am the uh, co-founder of a little company called Battlefin. You may have seen our pavilion uh, down the hall on the fourth floor. Um, I co-founded it with uh, Tim Harrington, uh, sitting there in, in the front row about eight years ago or so. Um, we were really early in the alternative data space. I'm very proud of what we've done since we founded the company. Um, we've developed what we believe is one of the most compelling and robust platforms for alternative data. Um, and we're going to get into that. This, this panel is, of course, all about data from data discovery to data intelligence. But before we get into that, I want to uh, say uh, a big thank you uh, to uh, Anthony, the entire uh, Skybridge uh, production team, uh, John, Joe, Kat, uh, everybody that makes this possible. It is, it, we have an events business at Battlefin. I know a little bit about what it takes to put a production on of this magnitude. Um, and I think you'd all agree this was an absolutely fantastic event to attend. We've, we've loved every minute of it. And what a way to cap off uh, my SALT experience, uh, but with this unbelievably distinguished panel of experts um, that I have here with me. To my left uh, is Heidi Lanford from Fitch. Uh, to her left, a face you may uh, be familiar with if you watch uh, CNBC, uh, Mr. Tom Lee from Fundstrat, one of the smartest people I know. Um, and uh, Mr. Charles Polikoff from Noma. I have known Charles uh, for a very long time, even before we were in the data business. <laughs> so it, it pays to be nice to everybody because you never know when you may bump into them again. Um, so why don't we sort of start, uh, Heidi, a little bit of your, your background and sure. what you're doing in uh, Fitch with sure. data. So um, nice to see everybody here and thanks for having me. I, um, I've kind of started off my career as a data scientist and spent most of my formidable years, you know, working as a consultant and a data scientist. And then I spent um, my time before joining Fitch as the chief data officer. I have spent years in the technology space and I recently joined from Red Hat um, open source software company that was acquired by IBM recently. And I have been really building uh, strong competitive data organizations as the latter part of my career. So really excited to be here and um, excited to represent Fitch. Thank you, we're, we're happy to have you. Tom? Uh, my name's Tom Lee. I'm the co-founder and head of research for Fundstrat Global Advisors. It's a research advisory firm. Uh, we've really got two businesses. One is uh, providing macro research and digital asset research to institutions in 22 countries. And we have a family office uh, RAA business called FS Insight. Uh, and it's largely the same uh, sort of focus, which is education. Uh, I'm very interested in doing this panel because uh, I've been doing research for almost 30 years, really the first 15 as a wireless analyst. And you know, when I started in 93, there were only 34 million cell phone users versus 6 billion today. Uh, so a lot of the business and, and knowledge that we needed to, to do to make equity calls was, was gathering alternative data. And, and you, you touched on something I want to put a pin in and come back to, the digitization of the modern economy, right, and what that means for the data space. But that's a, that's a little teaser. But before we do, Charles, wonderful to have you on stage with us. Tell us a little Thank bit about the company that you've built in your background. Yeah, so I am uh, Charles Polikoff, the CEO of Noma. For starters, I just want to thank you and Tim and, of course, Skybridge and everybody else for putting this amazing event together. It is fantastic to be back 
after having spent two years or so uh, in this sort of two-dimensional space, it's been great to be around people in sort of a three-dimensional form again and seeing a lot of folks that I haven't seen in a long time and having an opportunity to interact with prospects and clients has been great. So, so thank you for that. So a little bit about Noma, a little bit about my background, although I'm probably not as interesting as these two folks here. But um, so Noma, we're a data technology company uh, focused on making data accessible and usable. Uh, one thing that people will know that are users of data is that there's far too much time that's probably spent making data useful. So we focus on three main pillars of capability. The first is discovery. So making sure that folks have access to data that they need or new data sources that are interesting that could potentially impact a policy decision, an investment thesis, or any sort of like data-driven um, insight. The second is just around managing data pipelines. So data is the lifeblood of digitization. So somebody needs to manage that lifeblood, manage that infrastructure, making sure that everything is arriving in the formats that they're expected in, right? So that folks can consume that data on the other side. And lastly is workflow integration. As we all know, anybody that is a knowledge worker works in their tool of choice. So looking at the color of my hair, you will guess that my tool of choice is probably Excel. But there are others that use Python, R, Tableau, Power BI, uh, their own native applications. And that's really a core of what we do is being able to integrate in those native applications so people can use their workflow or productivity tools of choice so they can make those insight-based insight decisions. Uh, my background, I spent 15 years on the buy side and then was part of the management team over at Novus where we built a portfolio analytics solution, which was focused on um, measuring portfolio manager skills. We'll talk about that a little bit later on in terms of like what top line alpha and bottom line alpha actually means. And then uh, uh, part of the management team over at Visible Alpha when it was a very early stage company, it's now a data stalwart. So uh, that's my background. So, so like almost all of us on this panel, a good combination of TradFi, I think we're calling it now. I've heard that phrase uh, used a few times this week. <laughs> and and uh, DeFi and, and the data revolution. It, it, it probably makes sense just for a second um, to contextualize what we're talking about here uh, and, and what, what exactly is alternative data. And, and at Battlefin, we think about alternative data uh, into 42 or 43 separate categories, um, but it is essentially uh, that which you cannot derive from traditional sources like your Bloomberg terminal, although that's obviously changing now as, as well. Um, satellite imagery, geolocation, credit card, point of sale receipt, email receipt data, sentiment, uh, and many, many others. And this data, this resource, when we often talk about alternative data uh, as, as a resource uh, or as a commodity uh, being used in uh, ways that uh, five or eight years ago, we, when Tim and I started the company, we, we never could have anticipated. So Tom, maybe to have you kind of start us off you, you've been a you've been a data junkie, a, a self-proclaimed data nerd. Part of why I love you. Yeah. Um, tell me how you've sort of observed the evolution of the use of alternative data in context of Fundstrat's work. Uh, yes. Uh, well, first of all, alternative data um, has been a tool used by the best investors for decades. Uh, you know, many of you guys are probably familiar with Philip Fisher, and he wrote the book Common Stocks, Uncommon Profits, and you know, his original thesis was uh, visit companies, go visit warehouses, talk to sellers and vendors. That he was the original, that's the original alternative data model. And he had extraordinary returns, you know, many hundred X stocks. And I think in today's investment world, stock investors, the ones who really 
find the big opportunities are the ones that are exploiting alternative data, especially where they find variance versus either consensus or conventional views. And I think in the past year with COVID, it's been enormously important to use alternative data to really have informed views on macro and investment decisions. Because in the past, people might have only looked at the bond market or VIX to be, have an understanding of what the market's saying. But I think in the past year, it's you know there's been so much uncertainty created with COVID that the alternative data was was critical for people who, who did well. And we were talking the other day about inflation, by way of example, right? And how looking at these various traditional metrics to try to anticipate inflationary trends, how has using alternative data helped refine that and make that process more, uh, uh, its predictive capabilities enhanced? Uh, inflation's a great example of why investors need alternative data right now, because uh, in the past, CPI and understanding what the CPI print would be has a huge ripple effects across credit, sector positioning, single stocks, and even commodity prices. And in this current context, we've got supply chain glitches, we've got shortages, and we've got demand buildup and then explosion of demand. It's been very difficult for people to know what the real trajectory of inflation has been. So I would say right now, if people are using alternative data to be informed about the trajectory of inflation, they're going to have a huge edge because it's the difference between thinking we're in a, you know, as you know, there's a lot of people hyperventilating about inflation. I think a lot of our clients who've been using alternative data have realized a lot of these things are transitory and you're seeing it play out. I mean, even Stevie Cohen yesterday mentioned it. You know, the bond market is telling us this is probably transitory. Great. So, um, Heidi, maybe turning to you. So you, yeah. you've got a big job on your hands, like building out this whole new division. Tell us how you are viewing the integration of alternative data into Fitch. So for us, you know, I, I think this is a transformational shift in how organizations start thinking about data as a strategic asset, um, whereas in the past it has maybe been something that you go to, you know, IT or your tech team and you ask them to provide you with data or give you access to things. As we start to see this, you know, data organization being a strategic asset for the firm, that's where over the past 10 years, relatively new role, the chief data officer has emerged because it is that strategic asset. It's a member of the C-suite. It is helping to influence, you know, new product innovation. And with that in mind, you know, we're starting to, we have to recruit people who are not just great at the technology, data warehousing, data lakes, and data mesh. We're also looking for people that think about data as a product. Yeah and how we can productize that, whether it's for our internal you know, analysts that are consuming it or our external customers that want to buy data from us. And so the talent and the recruitment is top of mind for me as I've been building out my organization because thinking about strategic players, great at technology, but also have that innovation and product mindset. This is not for the faint of heart. This is about moving resources and organization. This is a little bit about data is powerful. Data gives people in some ways control. And to see that shift in mindset requires, it requires grit and determination from your leadership team and your company. And, and there are some practical challenges associated with it too. I would imagine divergent data sets in different departments across mm -hmm. the organization in different file formats and servers and things of Absolutely. that nature. Yeah. 
So, so that's a good transition. I, I know I see Charles chomping at the bit. That's a good transition to you and Noma. That's a big part of what you guys do, right? That, that's a huge part of what we do. It's all about empowerment. Um, you know, what, what Heidi was talking about, data productization, um, the types of data assets that people used to rely upon, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, channel checks, speaking to uh, management. Um, you know, I know in the 90s, we used to send folks to the mall and count how many people were actually walking in and out of stores. And, and now all of a sudden you have data that you can get in near real time, right? Maybe by looking at uh, Carvana or some of these other inputs, near real time visibility into what's going on in uh, used car pricing, which is of course influencing some of the inflation numbers. The Fed actually looks at those numbers, at least according to our friends over at uh, M Science, which is one of the data providers we work with. But um, you know, when you think about the challenges that organizations are going through right now right, to be data driven, to understand what that actually means, to be able to access different, different data products, right? There's a high variability problem. So there's a lot of data that comes from a lot of disparate sources. You have a subset of aggregators that correct, collect a certain amount of data, but then you have a long tail of data that may or may not be relevant depending on the regime that you're in. And then there's the pain that you just surfaced before, Mark, which is this idea that like folks need to build these connectors to constantly have this influx of products that could continue to inform their views. And then what it means to build an organization that supports that, right? And does an is an organization saddled with legacy technology, right? So it limits what they can actually do, right? Is an organization, to Heidi's point, thinking about data as an actual product and an asset and as an input that influences their digitization or digital strategy as they move forward. I mean, you see this in the insurance space, you see this in retail, you see this now in policymakers. The state of Texas is making all of their data available publicly so they can attract capital to come in. So people are viewing data as a strategic asset. They are viewing data as an internal product. And I think those that continue to think that way, McKinsey just wrote a piece recently about this, are gonna have a substantially greater advantage than those that do not. I, I, and again, I'll end on this point. I, I think it was um, Stevie Cohen and, and Dimitri Baliazny's panel when they talked about um, their firms that have enormous resources and markets are fairly efficient. So understanding how to find those differentiated data sets and being able to unify, in a, unify them in a way where you can contextualize those insights. So you're not just relying on one or two data sets. That's going to be a big differentiator going forward, yeah. not just in our space, and but in all industries. And over. Sorry, go ahead. And use them over and over again. Yeah, yeah. Like right. all those great nuggets that you're talking about or that Tom talked about, um, you don't want them to be one-offs. And that does require some discipline and in getting into a data organization and maybe doing some of those traditional things that we've done in terms of storing data. The, the, the challenges remain and are abundant, right? Um, and that's one of the reasons why companies like Noma and Shameless Plug Battlefin are such an important part <laughs> of the data industry. It's about aggregation, organization, curation, purification, and visualization. And I right? think in, in one thing to think about also is I think a lot of firms, particularly in the financial services space, whether it's on the asset management side or even wealth management, there's been a very like, DYI mindset. And I feel like DYI should be left to like Home Depot and Lowe's. And, and <laughs> folks really need to start thinking about what it means to leverage trusted partners. There's a lot of great new technology out there that can be leveraged to introduce ROI that didn't exist just two, three years ago. So Tom, maybe bringing it back to you, I mean, with 
Funstrat's organization and structure, I mean, you really thought about it from the beginning as a data-driven organization. That's but right. Tell, tell us a little bit about that process for you. Uh, well, you know, I, I would say Funstrat, uh, when we started the firm in 2014, we did sort of come with a mindset that we wanted to do evidence-based research and really help investors navigate markets not with opinions, um, but the idea of helping them understand future probabilities based on what we can observe. And so ca capturing data and aggregating it and ingesting it and cleaning it up uh, has been really important. I think one of the challenges that we found with a lot of data is that, you know, one, it, there is a lot of noisy data and a lot of errors in the data. And sometimes things look like contemporaneous indicators, but they're not necessarily uh, helpful with future. And give us an example. That's a great point. Give us an example. Of that. Uh, well, some you know examples of things like, I mean, here's something interesting because a client pointed this out to us once that he felt that there were some things that really helped explain the PMIs uh, on a real time basis, and I would call that like an observable relationship, but it didn't work inferentially. Like we weren't able to then say, okay, well, six months from now, what are the values of these different things? Right. So now you need to make an inference. And if you don't know what those are, then you're just making it up. And now it's just an opinion. Yeah. So that's a challenge. Um, and I think another thing we found was that sometimes you can get a very complete picture from alternative data, but it only just tells you what everybody else knows. And so it's difficult to find something that gives you an edge that's actionable. Like something can it give you an idea of how a data point might look, or is it going to help you understand positioning? But the, obviously the goal would be something that helps you know where things are six months from now. So, so what has worked, right? So we touched on inflation before, CPI, consumer confidence, very volatile in a, in a COVID exit, whatever the heck that means. I'm not even sure at this point that I know. What's worked? I mean, ha have you taken things like sentiment, which is one of the most popular categories on our platform, I think on yours as well, Charles, has, has that helped with predictability, with actually you know, extending the usefulness of these of these insights in the way that you've described? Yeah, it's a, Mark, this is a great question because I, I we found some really interesting things over the past year um, that are actually helpful, but then we're not, it's not clear to us if it's because of what's happened during COVID because in COVID, the world has become very digital. I mean, really last year, everybody lived a digital life. Right. Um, so things in a digital world are much more measurable. In fact, I think one of the most interesting conversations I had at JP Morgan was our economist had said that, you know, if, at the time he said, if you looked at the previous 15 years, 50% of all global GDP was pure digital. But the idea is that the next 20 year interval, it'll be 75% digital. That, that, that's, an that's an incredible uh, yeah. statistic, right? And it probably goes to 95% in the following 20 year yeah. interval. Yeah which means alternative data becomes way more comprehensive than what the BEA collects or what you can see in weekly claims. You know, the cadence of the data is so different. So I think to us, what we think, and, you know, we brought in a, a new guy, Adam Gould, who's from empirical research, but he's going to be doing a lot of machine learning work, is that the shelf life of a lot of the products we develop might be quite short. Too. And of course, that's why we would want to use guys that you guys have on your platform, because it it saves us the homework, because now we can just spend more time trying to curate it or understand it. Charles, so how, how are you positioning Noma to help your clients address these challenges? 
So I, I do want to say, just uh, address Please. one point that Tom just made. Um, I would say that uh, on that last point, data tends to be a bit regime dependent. So you will see data at assets become popular during a certain time period and they ebb and flow, right? I would say three years ago, macro is probably macro data was probably more focused for like macro strategists. Now macro data is a part of just about every strategy that's out there, right? So you'll see these data assets become more relevant or less relevant depending on what regimes and themes are being surfaced. Um, with respect to our clientele, you know, we work with a really wide range of clients. So it's not just buy side firms, it's buy side firms, it's sell side firms, it's corporations, it's wealth managers, it's government agencies. We work with data pr providers as well. So I, I would say there's twofold. I think one, for large organizations combining legacy data or first party data assets with third party data assets continues to be a challenge and folks are really starting to figure out how to optimize for that. You have legacy infrastructure, legacy technologies, and, and to, some, uh, to some extent, some legacy thinking. So for example, in the wealth management space, I think a lot of people are starting to really try to understand what it means to have a customer 360 view and what are those inputs that they can start to use, right? So what are the primary data sets about my customer that I've already collected that has to sort of live inside some kind of a clean room? And then what kind of third-party data assets can I collect to have a more informed view? So, you know, uh, investing preferences, does my customer care about ESG? Well, if they do, or, or socially important uh, companies or, or environmentally conscious companies. So if they do, I want to make sure that I start sending campaigns that are going to be interesting to them. So you have folks that are starting to build these data-driven practices. You're seeing this a lot in retail. You're seeing this a lot um, on the supply chain side. People really trying to understand how they can react to supply chain disruption on the corporate side. So it goes on and on and on and on. Um, with, with respect to the data provider side, I think data providers need to start to think what it means to offer a data product that is consumable. So how do, how do I create a data product? What does it mean to tickerize that product? What does it mean to start thinking about omni-channel distribution so that my data can be consumed through various exchanges, through various portals, through various tools? You wanna to be a gateway and not a gatekeeper. If you're a gatekeeper, you're, you're sorry. It's about, no, please, no, it's, it's really about um, making that process of discovery and ingestion doable, right? And so, because you, you mentioned tickerization, you know, we've been talking about that since the beginning of the data industry. Nobody's done it yet, right? Or even so, entity resolutions. So right. I'm looking at uh, Athleta, I wanna know that that maps up to Gap, and somebody's taking the time to actually do that work. So I think on the data productization side, there's still some work to do. And that's what we found that we've been doing work to help customers. For example, on the Snowflake marketplace, we're, we're a partner with Snowflake mm -hmm. and we're one of the largest uh, contributors of public data over there. But we're also working with um, alternative data vendors to actually productize their data on the marketplace, right? So what does it mean to actually create a data product, create metadata tables, source data tables, all those things. It's not sexy work, but it's necessary work so that people can have access to these insights. And, and, as, and as we expand, as we've seen with our business at Battlefin from when we started it to today, that evolution beyond just the hedge fund as the main consumer of alternative data, or even you know, the financial services world generally, as we expand out into more corporate use cases, government and NGO use cases, that prospect or that uh, uh, challenge of ingestion, sanitization, and consumability and visualization, which we could do a panel just on that, becomes much more relevant. Heidi, challenges 
There's yeah. been a lot, and, and I'm going to give you a little hint on something I want you to touch on. Um, there was huge, huge news in the data industry yesterday. There was an SEC settlement the first time ever, ever. And I've been talking about it for those of you that had the misfortune of listening to the regulatory and legal panels that I do for Battlefin over live or in person uh, or uh, over Zoom, which are real snoozers if you can't fall asleep. <laughs> um, this was big. We were talking about this. Is the Gensler administration going to be the first to actually bring an enforcement action against a, a participant in the data industry? How do you see regulation, changing regulation as one of the challenges that you face in this massive project that you've undertaken? I mean, it definitely affects us because we have, uh, obviously, part of our business on the rating side is, a, is highly regulated, and then part of our business on our solution side is not as regulated. Right. And I guess with everything, I think there's pros and cons to both. One of the benefits that a lot of people get from regulation, if done, if done well, is standardization and consistency. Yeah, right. um, we've all read every week an article in the paper about ESG and how ESG scores are sometimes challenging to interpret and understand like for light because they're done differently. There's no not, standardization. And I'm not suggesting that we, you know, regulate that. Um, but, you know, Fitch just released a sustainable Fitch product actually today. And so, you know, we're all doing a lot in the ESG space and we think we've got, you know, an innovative way to look at that. Um, the con though, is if you over-regulate it and you've not necessarily got the right people who understand data, who are making these regulations, becomes really challenging then to, I mean, it's all about, we want to get the benefits of data. We want data to give us insights so that we can make better decisions. Yeah. And if, if it becomes a, you know, too bureaucratic and making those laws, that can, can hinder us. But I did want to actually touch on a topic that we've sort of been talking about. And that's, you know, Tom talked a lot about inference and it's the classic causation and correlation thing and not trying to steer things in a different direction. But I think this really gets down to um, building a culture of data literacy within your organization. So again, like, and I don't know if data literacy has been a big topic that you've, you've talked about in the past couple of days here, but data literacy is not creating a bunch of PhD data scientists in your organization. What it is, is educating those consumers of information so that they can make the best decision possible and take action on it. That might mean offering some training and education on how to deal with you know, missing values or data that's a little sketchy or understanding the difference between causation and correlation and when to phone up, you know, a data scientist in your organization. And that's another part of my job is to actually build out a data literacy program for our entire company to get folks essentially comf comfortable and confident enough to work with data and make those data-driven decisions. And it's not just a learning and development program. It is a cultural mind shift yeah. And it's, it's a thing now. People are relating data literacy to, it's like data is a second language. There are various dialects within data. There are levels of proficiency. There could be a, you know, fluent, you know, I dream in data versus I have conversational knowledge of data and that's okay. Yep. Um, but that's what this shift is about. And all these challenges we've been talking about, about integrating data and the platforms, they are going to be here for the next yeah foreseeable future it's just are we going to get better at it using 
you know, awesome tools like Knowledge Graph and AI and ML and RPA and things like that. And, and challenging in particular from talking about the regulation or regulatory perspective, when we have sort of a alphabet soup or dog's breakfast of regulators, right? Whether it's, you know, the FCC from a consumer privacy, from the yeah. SEC, there's not, it's not just one entity. We've got, unfortunately, like a minute, 20 seconds on the clock. So um, in 30 seconds or less, starting with you, Tom, 2022, biggest thing you expect to see changes in alternative data? What's in store for us? Wow. In, thir in, in 30 seconds, I mean, I'll just say, I think that, you know, the next 12 months are going to be really critical. And again, Stevie Cohen mentioned it, you know, yesterday, it's no longer going to be a macro market. This is going to be single stock winners and losers operating leverage. People connect with customers. This is really important to get the alternative data sources correct. Fantastic. Fantastic. Oh, I, I want to thank... I was going to do for all of you, but unfortunately, I don't think we have enough time. I'm getting the nod from backstage. I want to thank all of you for joining us this afternoon uh, and listening to this unbelievable panel. Charles, Tom, Heidi, thank you for agreeing to do this. It was absolutely my pleasure. We hope that we taught you something about alternative data and the evolution of the space. I'm sure all of uh, my fellow panelists would be available to answer any questions that you have after the panel, and I would be remiss if I didn't invite you all if you haven't already done so, well, hell, if you have, go again. Come visit us at Battlefin uh, on the fourth floor.